appreciate you, Jim. Thank you very much. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to primetime. Imagine you're watching men kill another man. That's what you believe. And they keep trying to kill him despite your screams. You're begging them to stop. And you can't call the cops because the men are the cops. The second day of testimony in the trial of Derek Chauvin brought that pain that for most of us, thank God, is just imaginary. But for too many, it is real. And it was said in full with deeply emotional accounts from witnesses as young as nine years old. Most weren't allowed to be shown on camera because they are underage. Listen. Do you recognize this man? Yes. Do you remember what he was doing? How do you know him? He was pushing the neck with George Floyd. Do you see him in the courtroom today? No. Okay, how about him? Yes. Having been there on this day and seeing the, the officer on top of George Floyd, how did you feel about that? How did it affect you? I was sad and kind of mad. Nine years old. One after another. Kids, young adults, parents, first responders, all with uncommonly consistent recollections of the event. Remember, it is rare for eyewitnesses, even though they see the exact same thing, to see it the exact same way. But that's the case here. Each echoing the same agony of pleading with officers to free Floyd from the knee that he was pinned under for more than nine minutes. These are emotions that reverberate in the streets outside the court and all over the country. Let's be honest. This is not just another trial. It is a flashpoint. And absolutely, what happens in that courtroom can't be about politics. It must be about fairness under fact and law. But also, it is dishonest to say that the outcome won't have a major influence on society, potentially. Now, one of the most powerful accounts came from that nine-year-old girl's cousin. The cousin is the teenager who recorded the most crucial piece of evidence at this trial. The video of Floyd's death that set off a national reckoning on systemic injustice. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and, and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. But it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. That is Darnella Frazier breaking down in tears on the stand. So did a Minneapolis firefighter who testified she was prevented from helping Floyd by the officers who are now suspects in his murder. The helplessness, the pain of those who were forced to look on as a man died was brought home by a young man who told the jury he believes it was murder. And that's why he called the cops on the cops in that moment. Listen. At some point, um, did you make a 911 call? That is correct. Uh, did call the police on the police. Right. And why did you do that? Because 
uh, I believe I witnessed a murder. You are going to hear a lot in the media about Donald Williams. Uh, he first appeared on this show, by the way. We had an exclusive interview with him after Floyd's killing. But you're hearing about it because of what occurred in the cross-examination with defense counsel. And I'm going to show you that. But his real impact today of that testimony didn't come from what happened with the defense attorney. It came from what the defense counsel failed to do during his testimony. It is the first major mistake that I've seen in this. It's a young trial, but it could be a major factor for the jury. What is it? Let's discuss. Back with us tonight, a better mind who knows what it's like to prosecute a case like this, former federal prosecutor, Elliot Williams, a former deputy assistant AG, attorney general. It's good to see you again, brother. Hey, Chris. So the reason people are talking about Williams is because of a contentious back and forth during cross with defense counsel. Let's play one of the most pertinent uh, parts of it. In that statement, you said, like, I really wanted to beat the shit out of the police officers. Mm -hmm. You said that. Yeah, I did. That's what I felt. You were angry. No, you can't paint me out as angry. I wasn't, I was in a position where I had to be controlled. Those terms grew more and more angry. Would you agree with that? They grew more and more pleading for life. Now, Elliot, one, you've got just bad optics here, right? You're trying to paint the black guy as an angry guy, uh, defending the white guy who killed the black guy. You're right, that's the allegation. Those are optics. Um, What you and I agree on here is that's not what makes Williams' testimony Uh, so powerful for the jury. It's what defense counsel failed to do when Williams uttered his, uh, you know, these reverberating words of, I thought I was witnessing a murder. What did the defense counsel do when he said that? We did nothing and he should have objected to it. That was um, a statement that on its face should not have been allowed in court. And, you know, we haven't been seeing a lot of objections in this trial. And, you know, that's common to some more common than law and order. People don't in real trials don't object all the time. But when a witness says, I thought I was witnessing a murder, what that witness has done is made a legal conclusion. And that is not the role of a witness in a criminal trial. It's the role of the judge to instruct the jury as to what murder is, and then the jury to apply the facts to the law and say, well, you know, either we think this was a murder or we don't. What the witness was doing was was making a legal opinion. And immediately the the defense attorney should have objected to that. And frankly, you know, the judge could have stepped in at that point, too, and said, you know what, you can say what you saw, you can say you saw the knee on the neck or whatever. But you know, you can't use that word murder and the jury heard it. You can't unring that bell. And now it's out there. Well, one, the zone was flooded with poignant testimony. So you could see how if you're not on your game, you could get lulled. But you know, for those who aren't lawyers who are at home, as is lawyer speak, you know, this matters. The jury now heard as acceptable to the record as a matter of fact that this witness believed what he saw was a murder. How powerful can that be in deliberations? Well, it's almost like they put a 13th juror in there now and you've put someone 
who's come across as a relatively credible witness. Now, the defense attacked him a little bit um, and, you know, with his mixed martial arts and his opinions and that, you know, he was angry, like you said, a black man. They didn't use the word, but painting him as a black man who's angry. Um, but the word has been said, and it's someone that can at least back, if the jury wishes to convict, they can say, look, this guy we heard who was there at the scene also believes this was a murder. Perhaps maybe it was a murder. Remember, jurors are picked on the basis of their just not understanding, or not having an understanding of the case and being willing to be blank slates about the law. And when someone tells them what a murder is, maybe they'll credit it and maybe they'll believe it. To, uh, interesting choices by the prosecution today. Uh, the first one is bringing kids on. Uh, why? Some people are turned off by it. Don't do this to the kids. Make your case. You got plenty of adults. But there was power in hearing these kids speak today. What did you think of the tactic? How do you think it worked out? Look, kids are very compelling witnesses. You have to be delicate and careful. And both sides, no matter who is questioning a child, needs to be careful, make them feel, frankly, loved and respected uh, because they're just delicate. And they're, there's a nine-year-old who was clearly traumatized. Uh, so they had to you know, make her feel heard. The other thing, though, is that kids are, to some extent, to some extent, inherently credible. They have far less of a desire. They don't have the baggage that we have as adults, far less of a desire to get involved in matters. And like now, again, in a way, they're also less credible because they're kids and they're young and they don't know as much. But they're, in a way, the innocence of youth is a very powerful thing to put on stage, put on, but it is a stage of sorts, but yep. to put on trial. Again, it just requires a tremendous amount of care. And if you notice, at least one of the times, and, and uh, maybe even all of them, I, I don't recall off the top of my head, um, the defense didn't cross-examine some of the child witnesses right. because it's just dangerous to cross-examine a kid. You, you yep. just, there are so many pitfalls there. And what you get here is a very interesting dividing line in the case between wrong and illegal. Those witnesses today all went to the fact that what they watched was so obviously wrong. It was wrong to the 911 dispatcher. It was wrong to the nine-year-old. It was wrong all the way around. It was wrong to the point where a firefighter was watching and said, hey, I got to help this guy. He's obviously in extremis. He's obviously in a very bad state. And she wasn't allowed to do so. Let's play some of that. In my memory, I offered to walk, kind of walk them through it or, or told them, if he doesn't have a pulse, you need to start compressions. And that wasn't done either. And so when it, well, is this, are these things that you wanted to do? It would have, it's what I would have done for anybody. And when you couldn't do that, how did that make you feel? Totally distressed. Were you frustrated? Yes. Now, you got to remember where we are on this. Um, a lawyer asking a firefighter, how did you feel? Now, that question doesn't come up in court as often as you may think. Reporters use it all the time because how people feel isn't really relevant most of the time, except it goes to their intent. Here, they are building a case, Elliot, that everybody got in their head and their heart that this was wrong. The kid, the adult, the trained first responder all knew that what was happening was wrong and she could have helped and so could they, but they chose not to. Effectiveness level? 
Oh, quite effective. Chris, say it with me. Objection. Uh, the defendant didn't, the defense didn't object to that and probably should have. Why are her feelings relevant to the, the fundamental question of whether uh, Derek Chauvin kills George Floyd? They're just, they're just not relevant. Now, what I think the, def what the defense did do today was try to attack her credibility. Well, you know, you're an EMT versus a paramedic. You were off duty. You were joining the mob of people that was attacking the police and so on. And that's a common tactic of defense attorneys to poke holes in the credibility of individual witnesses. Because here's the thing, most of the facts aren't in dispute right now. Until you get to the toxicology reports mm -hmm. and the other sort of science stuff that we're going to see either later this week or next week or beyond, nothing is really up for debate that we've seen. Everybody has the videos. All of the witnesses are largely, no one's really contradicting each other and they're all testifying to the same things. So it's really the defense's job at this point to just try to poke holes in the credibility of the witnesses. But the problem here is that what they had was a firefighter in her dress whites breaking down into tears on the stand and being quite credible. So it's it's just a challenging uh, it's just a challenging witness to really dirty up, I think. Right, and they didn't need it, but you know you could have brought on uh, an expert. And the difference between an EMT training and paramedic training for the purposes of this kind of observation is irrelevant. Um, but. Yes. It was overwhelming, this aspect of the case. But as Elliot just alluded, now, the way I want to do this with him as much as I can get him every night is we're going to go through what we've seen. We do not have to take a step farther from that. Speculation gets to be a dangerous game in these trials, especially one with the impact that this one is going to have, depending on the outcome. But forensics and the medical opinions and the look at George Floyd's body and his condition is going to be the best chance for doubt the defense has. That is yet to come. So we'll cover that, but not now, because we're not gonna speculate. When they offer it up, that's when we'll take it apart. Now, I do wanna keep you though, Elliot, if I can. Stay across the break, because we have developing news that is very confusing uh, to me, and I want Elliot's help on this. Congressman Matt Gates, you know him, the uh, firebrand retrumplican from Florida. There is a report tonight that he is under federal investigation for trafficking in an underage female for purposes of sex. His response is every bit as shocking as the allegation. A lot to unpack. Let's do it next. This may be a first. It's developing on our watch in terms of an allegation of this nature. Florida Congressman Matt Gates is denying that he had any kind of sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl. Now, why does he have to do that? Because the New York Times, citing sources, is reporting that the DOJ is investigating. The actual word they use is that there is an inquiry at the Department of Justice uh, about a possible sexual relationship and whether Gates paid for this young woman to travel with him. Under federal law, 18 is the statutory minimum age, not as it is in some states, 16 or 17. Trafficking would mean you move the person from one state to another. That triggers a federal potential law. Now, in a statement to CNN, Gates says in part, quote, no part of the allegations against me are true. He also tweets again, quoting, over the past several weeks, my family and I have been victims of an organized criminal extortion involving a former DOJ official seeking $25 million while threatening to smear my name. 
We have been cooperating with federal authorities in this matter, and my father has even been wearing a wire at the FBI's direction to catch these criminals. The Justice Department is not commenting, and the FBI in Florida has not responded to a request for comment. Lucky for us, we already have a former federal prosecutor with us, Elliot Williams, tonight. That's why I asked him to stay. Inquiry versus investigation. Same thing? No, of course not. But but look, they have enough information or they have enough evidence to at least uh, be suspicious enough to open uh, an inquiry into the matter. And they certainly have more evidence together and more uh, information to find. But this is troubling and should be troubling uh, for him, for anyone else involved. Um, Here's what I don't like, you know, Elliot. Sure. It doesn't smell right to me. Six, oh, six months, the reporting says they've been looking at this. Six months yes. to figure out whether or not somebody had sex with somebody else and they traveled. That's a six well, day investigation, not a six month investigation. It makes me no, wonder Chris, if he's right about what he said. No, Chris, I disagree with you on that just because it's not just a question of whether the underlying act happened. Number one, what they have to do is seize the phone records, the text chat, the text uh, messages and so on to the plane tickets, the, the bank receipts, the financial records to really establish that it happened. Like, look, he might have texted or had some personal relationship with someone who was underage, but you have to document and establish everything. Investigations just take a long time. And it's also a question Six of months? what... Chris, investigations take a while to build. And it's also, what other charges are they looking at? When, look, when I saw the New York Times article, just as you did, there's any number of uh, sex trafficking statutes that could be in play here. The obvious one is crossing state lines uh, with a minor to solicit an individual in, into sexual activity. There's also, you know, force, fraud, and coercion, labor, all kinds of other questions, but also obstruction of justice if he's using encrypted materials to try to communicate and so on. These are all the universe of things the Justice Department could be looking at. It's not as open and shut as Law and Order SVU. All right, no, I get, all right, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. I'm just wondering if that block of time is suggestive of what he says. Now, an extortion screen, uh, scheme from an, a former official would be a, a total separate matter. Even if it were related to this underlying yeah. inquiry, it would be a separate inquiry. Um, but let's listen to Gates' defense of the allegation. Yeah. On March 16th, my father got a text message demanding a meeting wherein a person demanded $25 million in exchange for making horrible sex trafficking allegations against me go away. Our family was so troubled by that, we went to the local FBI. And the FBI and the Department of Justice were so concerned about this attempted extortion of a member of Congress that they asked my dad to wear a wire, which he did with the former Department of Justice official. Tonight, I am demanding that the Department of Justice and the FBI release the audio recordings that were made under their supervision and at their direction, which will prove my innocence. Now, look, first, if Gates wants to be taken seriously, he shouldn't be on that clown show uh, because it immediately takes away from whether or not you can believe him. But look, Fox has defended that show in court by saying it's not to be taken credibly. You want people to believe you, go on and be asked the questions in a place that people will take seriously. Now, if that's true, what he just said, that this guy was trying to pinch them for money and they've been working with the feds. I know that you guys, I know the FBI never wants to say it's doing anything. But in fairness to Matt Gates, if any of that is true, shouldn't they say so, given that the allegation is in public? 
Absolutely. If someone's extorting somebody else, let's indict that guy too and investigate. That's a serious crime. And he's alleging something serious. And if it's true, it should be investigated. And people who are engaging in acts of extortion should- No, I'm saying I want the DOJ or the FBI to say what Matt Gates is saying is true. There is an ongoing matter. We won't comment anymore. You know, because right now they're leaving him out to dry. Is that really fair to him? Well, again, if there is an, there, there are standards as to when the Justice Department is going to announce a particular investigation or not. I, I'm learning this uh, in real time, just as you are. Um, if it is real and if it's serious, you know, it, it should lead to charges. And there's, there's no question about that. And I don't think that just because it's a member of Congress that many people might disagree with that we should be applauding it or applauding the extortion or so on. What I found more interesting was Matt Gates's initial statement out of the block, which was, um, well, you know, look, when I was a single guy, I paid for plane tickets for all kinds of people. Like, come on, that's certainly not the most credible defense to an individual uh to an individual who's been alleged, or at least might be alleged, to have engaged in an unlawful sex trafficking act. So the key more point is that's not the right answer. The right answer is no, <laughs> right? The right answer is no. I never did this. I had nothing to do with this. And oh, yeah, yeah. to be honest, you shine light on you know won't be satisfying, but both things could be true. The allegation about him and that they're looking at it could be true, yeah. and the allegation that somebody tried to extort because they had knowledge of it or whatever, could also be true. Elliot Williams. And, you know, Chris, yes, wait, real quick point. He can, he's free to name the, the DOJ official that he says he extorts him. So he, if he knows of it, name that person he and did. put that person's name out there. He did. He put it out there, and I'm sure the person's going to be dug into right away. We'll take, take developments as we can, um, because you got to get stuff like this right. You really only got one chance at it. Elliot Williams, thank you very much for being our guide. Appreciate you. Thank All you. right, now back to our lead story, Okay. This Chauvin trial, absolutely, it has to be about law and fact. Nobody should say anything differently. But we also can't be dishonest about the relevance in greater society. Systemic inequality is real. George Floyd became a flashpoint and a metaphor for what so many people fear for themselves and their families around this country. Michael Eric Dyson is joining us tonight to talk about what this trial means, especially if there is an acquittal. And he met with President Biden. I wanna ask him a couple of questions about what he really thinks about Biden and what Biden needs to do. Next. When I look at George Floyd, I look at, I look at my dad, I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles because they are all black I have black I have a black father I have a black brother I have black friends and I I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them now as I was speaking uh, earlier in the show the first major mistake was made in this trial today by defense counsel that is very powerful what you just heard and absolutely true for so many people who testified today and all over this country, which is why George Floyd's story resonated. But those comments had no place in a criminal trial. They should have been objected to. When Mr. Williams said, I thought I was witnessing a murder, it should have been objected to as speculation and drawing a conclusion, which is not what that witness is uh, supposed to be doing. 
but he didn't. And that is a really interesting call, which could come back to haunt this defense. Now, the larger significance here is why we played that sound. Let's bring in a renowned race and religion scholar, professor, writer, a friend, Michael Eric Dyson. Good to see you, brother. Good to see you too, my friend. Long time coming is the name of one of your works. And uh, that is how many are looking at this trial. Is that unfair in a way? Yes, it's putting too much of a burden uh, on this jury in terms of, you know, they're supposed to just do their job of law and facts, but it's going to reverberate. How do you see this trial in terms of its significance in the national dialogue on systemic injustice? Well, it's quite revelatory. There's no question that you're absolutely right in terms of the jurisprudential rationality, the legal thinking that says certain things are admissible, certain things are not to be admitted. On the other hand, we're sandwiched between that jurisprudential outlook on the one hand, and on the other hand, common sense. The jurisprudence and the legal reasoning says, hey, just use your common sense. We tell the juries, uh, use your common sense. And what they're sandwiched between here is legal rationality and common sense that tells us something horrible went down. These people are moved to tears. The young women who are on the stand um, articulating ideas and emotions, you're absolutely right that in a usual courtroom, uh, they would be objected to. Perhaps the defense attorney calculated the risk of looking hostile uh, to these young women. But I think in the larger world, black people are on trial with George Floyd. This is our father, our brother, our son, our cousin. It's us. We look at him and say, what more do you have to do in order to prove that you were murdered unfairly? And I'll end by saying this. Isn't it interesting that the defense says there was fentanyl and other drugs found? Well, when they opened up the body of Martin Luther King Jr. after he was murdered in 1968 in Memphis, they said he had the heart of a 60-year-old man. So that there, was other, there were other things that worked there, but the overwhelming evidence is that what killed him was that bullet. I think many people here are clear that what killed this man was not fentanyl or drugs or heart disease, but the knee of a cop. Well, as always, you've put your finger on exactly what will be most important. I believe the reason that this defense counsel allowed people to draw conclusions and say how they felt, which is not great practicing uh, as a defense counsel, is because he's making a bet that he wins this on the forensics, so he doesn't want to upset the jury by getting in the way of all this palpable emotion that makes a lot of sense, giving people watching something that was so wrong. It was definitely wrong. Can they show the prosecutor that it was illegal? We'll see. Um, Joe Biden, president, do you believe he is an ally to the cause of systemic justice in this country, 100%? Without question. Um, having met with the president, having known him for uh, many years, I think that there is no doubt that his commitment is to serious and sustained racial justice. And he is a man who has put his reputation on the line uh, far more many times than has been publicly acknowledged. Has he made mistakes along the way in a long 45, 50 year career? Absolutely. But what he has done most especially is been self-critical, willing to be introspective, examine his own beliefs, commit himself to the principles that will be transcendent, bring in folk who know better than he does, consult them, and then engage in public policy that will make a difference. I think there's no question about his commitment. He says he wants to go big. Uh, I remember Harry Belafonte, very good friend of my family, um, talking to my father and saying, you know what we need to hear, Mario? Uh, and my father, what? He said, nothing. We need to see. 
What do you need to see from Joe Biden to show he wants to go big? What is big? What does that look like? Well, looking at the system itself, you know, we don't have to agree on the specificities and particularities of, say, police reform, but we need teeth in these oversight uh, committees that are charged with looking at the police. If you don't want to defund the police, fine. If that's your position to reform them, then have real reform. Put teeth in those committees, uh, have subpoena power uh, assigned to them, look at ways to distribute more equitably uh, what we consider to be public safety. The police are not the exclusive preserve of that. And then finally, use your bully pulpit to identify with the victims of misconduct and deep and profound injustice in this country. So my brother and my mentor, when we get closer into the forensics, I want you back to talk about what the forensics mean in terms of people's reckoning of what this is really about. Um, Because I think it was a wake up call for a lot of allies in our society, people like me, white, I don't live it. I don't understand it. I'll never be able to imagine it. But when I hear it from the people I care about, I listen. And when people said that could have been me, that could have been my kid, the forensics are going to be the next layer on that in terms of how that contrasts with people's version of reality. I need you back then. Please come back. Well, I'd love to. We're caught between toxicology and the toxic racial atmosphere that we are being choked by. That's the choice we have in this country. As always, that's what I wanted to say. And you said it better. Pandemic (laughs) progress. All 50 states have now expanded or have dates to expand vaccine eligibility to everyone 16 and older. That is phenomenal. We could have never imagined a year ago, when I was first sick, that we would be where we are now. Then why are we more worried than ever about a fourth wave? The expert who predicted we were in the eye of the hurricane three weeks ago gives his forecast now. Next. We are facing another COVID-19 surge. That's what the science says. That's what the trends show. I know a lot of states are taking steps to roll back their mask mandates. And I know most of us are happy about it. We're tired of it. We're frustrated. We're broke. People want to get back to business. They want to get back to life. YOLO. I know. I hear it all. I feel it. But you heard the the CDC director. She warned of impending doom. She said that cases could spike all over the country. Our next guest warned of a Category 5 hurricane just last month due to variants. Michael Osterholm joins us now to share his thoughts on where we are. It's always good to see you. Um, But let's have this conversation with the people that you need to have it with. You know, too often we're preaching to the converted here. You hear this. I don't care. They are not going to be hospitalized in any big ways. People aren't getting sick as bad as they used to. The death rates aren't spiking. I get that the variants are more contagious, but we've had enough. We got the vaccine. It's going to be the nice summer months. We got to get back to life now. There'll be more cases, but people will be okay. What do you say? First of all, what we have to understand is we do have that potential for a really different life later this summer when vaccines are readily available and that we all can have a chance to get vaccinated. But right now, we have very limited vaccine for most of the public, and well over 50% of our country's population still is vulnerable to this virus. And what's happening now, we have this new virus, the variant B117, which is 70 to 100% more infectious, 
is 50 to 60 percent more likely to cause severe disease and is doing something that the other uh, viruses and COVID-19 didn't do, and that's infecting young kids a lot. And they're spreading the virus now. And this is really fundamentally changing the entire picture of what's happening. So you're saying the variant isn't just something that spreads more. It can make you more sick. How sure are we of that and what does that mean? Well, unfortunately, we have a number of roadmaps to follow. Right now, the countries in the world that actually have the highest rates of disease, which are just really skyrocketing, are in East Central Europe, all due to B117. We've watched it go through Europe. We're watching it around the world right now. And in each instance, we see what it's doing. And it's, in fact, causing much more severe illness in 20 to 49-year-olds than we saw with the other strains. And because kids are readily spreading it, we now actually see a number of 20 to 49 year olds getting infected that we didn't see before. So this is in a sense rewriting the playbook and that's what we have to adjust to. Now, if we can just hold out, if we can just get enough vaccine between now and the summer, we can actually beat this one. But what, as you described so very well, We're not. We're impatient. It's like we want to believe gravity doesn't exist anymore. Well, it does. And that's what we're up against right now. The CDC director said vaccinated people do not carry the virus and don't get sick. Um, Now, I've heard reports of people getting vaccinated and then getting COVID. There's a disconnect. What do you believe? Well, I think what she was referring to basically is it largely protects. The vaccine is 90 to 95% protective in most young, healthy adults up to middle age. The older you get, it is less effective. And we know that for all vaccines. If you look at influenza vaccine, the same is true. We are seeing cases that do have breakthroughs. But generally, even if you do get sick after you've been vaccinated, you're less ill. You're not as likely to be hospitalized. And that's the good news. How much worse do you think it gets? Well, worldwide, it's where the darkest days are just upon us. We are going to see the highest number of cases globally in the next three to five weeks that we've seen all told. What about here? In the United States. Yeah. In the United States, it's going to be totally up to how much are we going to open. Right now, we're the only country in the world, get this, only country in the world where B117, this variant, is spreading that's opening up as opposed to closing down. So, I mean, in a sense, we're creating the perfect storm. And, you know, I, who, who's going to be the person that's going to die three days before they were scheduled to get their vaccine? I hope no one. But what we're doing right now, I think there's going to be a lot of people. Michael Osterholm, as always, I have you on because you're usually right, but I hope you're wrong. I thank you I for do giving too. your perspective. Be well. I'll talk thank to you. you again soon. Thank you. All right. Look, I mean, this is heavy. I feel you. I feel all of it. I feel why people are frustrated, but I believe guys like him. Um, And I hate to see the pain. I just do. Not only are the vaccines sparing us from getting sick, but there is a controversy coming here. And I got to tell you, I haven't put a lot of stock in it, but it's time that I start covering it. Okay, there are people who have had covid who swear they feel better after getting the vaccine. Is one of my next guests a long hauler no more because of the vaccine? A doctor I respect, who I go to for help, who studies this, is going to help us understand what is possible. Next.
As you know, about a year ago today, I became uh, one of the many who have had COVID-19, and I am still suffering from long-haul syndrome. I have good luck compared to most people. And now I just had some more good luck. Just this morning, I received my first Pfizer shot of the vaccine. I've spoken to people who've said the vaccines helped their symptoms subside, especially the Pfizer one. My next guest says she experienced just that. Last spring, Judy Dodd, a teacher, began struggling with long COVID symptoms, shortness of breath, headaches, exhaustion. After receiving the second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, she says her symptoms disappeared. Judy joins us now with Dr. William Lee, President Medical Director of the Angiogenesis Foundation. He has been studying long haulers uh, like Judy and me. Now, Judy, you know you're with family uh, here. I'm not here to judge you. I hope that you, you are right. But just give us, let's keep this light and tight. Why do you believe that only after the second vaccine of Pfizer, right? Did you have Pfizer? That, I did. That yes. you really saw a notable difference. Tell the audience. Okay, so after my first vaccine, I was miserable, low-grade fever, fatigue, headaches, sort of mimicked kind of long-haul um, COVID symptoms. And then after my second vaccine, the next day I had a high fever. Then I followed up with a couple days of fat fatigue and severe headaches. And then I woke up, uh, it was a Sunday morning, it was the fourth day, day four, I woke up and you know, it was like those coffee commercials you see where the, the sun is just coming up. Um, I felt great. Attitude change. I woke up ready to go. Um, I have energy now. The shortness of breath is gone. Uh, the headaches are gone. Mainly the fatigue is gone. I mean, I can do things now like a normal person. You know, I can cook dinner for my kids. I work all day. I can come home, cook dinner for my kids, uh, grade papers, and, and not feel like I've been flattened by a bulldozer. So, you know. And it was the vaccine. It was the vaccine that was a demarcation for you, not the Folgers oh. flavor crystals in the coffee. All right. I, I, <laughs> for I, sure it was the vaccine. Yeah, I, I, I got, got you on that. And I want you to be yeah. right. Now, Dr. Lee, you've been looking at this. Um, what is the chance that there is correlation and causation for a long hauler um, like Judy? You know, long haulers has been one of these uh, twists and mysteries in COVID-19. It's a disease that has actually confounded us almost at every turn. And long haulers is another one of them. And as the vaccines have been rolling out, and about 40% of people who have received a vaccine, according to a recent patient survey, um, people who are long haulers re re uh, uh, report that their long haulers uh, uh, our symptoms are, are reduced and some people actually have remission of their symptoms. So a surprise, um, very unlikely to be a placebo effect. Why? And now we need to pay attention to understand why. Why? Because I was going to whack Judy with the placebo effect. So why is it not that? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, there's no reason to think that, uh, you know, placebo effect, usually there's an expectation for something to happen. Expectation for vaccines is not to get infected. These people have already been infected like Judy and so there's and are suffering. And, and you know, the one thing about long haulers, as you know very well, Chris, is that you're really exquisitely sensitive to how your body feels. So when somebody and, and Judy's not the only person, I've got a couple of 
patients I've been taking care of who uh, remarkably will text me out of the blue after they get their vaccine and say, Dr. Lee, I am feeling a, so much better, I can't believe it. And so we can't under, we don't under have the explanation yet, but we need to pay attention. Something seems to be going on. What percentage better do you think you are, Judy? Oh, oh my goodness. I would say like 90%, 95%, I have to lose the COVID weight. You know, that's, that's, that's the next hurdle. Um, it didn't do that for me, unfortunately. But um, yeah, like I'm almost back where I was pre-COVID. So um, yeah, 90%, I would say. Well, Judy, know this. I love that this is your reality. And I hope it becomes a reality for others. Hell, I'd love it for myself, but I hope it more for people who have more severe uh, long haul. One of the things that's been helping me, Dr. William Lee can put out the supplements that he gave me to take. I'm not a doctor. I'm not in the business of pushing anything like that, but I do trust him. Uh, If you want to put out what you gave me, I have felt better during the course of treatment he's given me. So, which is good for him because it means I'm not bothering him as much. Judy Dodd, thank you for sharing your stories. And I am so thankful for you and your family that you're back to feeling like yourself and doing what you want to do and being your best self. And Dr. William Lee, thank you for helping people understand the possibilities here, including me. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you, Chris. All right, we'll be right back. You know, if you think about it, so many of the major things that we're struggling with right now are within our own control. Systemic equality, racism, liberty and justice for all, that's within our control. It's a function of choice. The vaccine is a function of choice. Living with masks or not and cutting this period, it's a matter of choice. Who do we want to be? CNN Tonight, the big show with the big star, the number one selling New York Times bestselling author, D. Lemon, right now. Well, we want to be, this is what I think we want to be and what we should be. We should be... um, Good countrymen to our fellow men, right? Uh, good citizens to our fellow countrymen is the is best way of putting it. We should want to protect not only ourselves, but other people. We should want to wear masks because they protect us and they protect other people. We should want to get a vaccine because we got science. It. You know what I'm saying? We got it. We're one shot in. That's who we should. Yes. So uh, I felt like I had like a hangover. And you know, I haven't had, I haven't drank in a, in a long time just because, but I felt like I, I had a hangover. Okay. For two My days. arm is a little sore. I'll tell you what, I, I have never been part of a government process that ran better than this vaccine thing did. I went right by my house out in East Hampton. Yeah. And it was so organized. The volunteers, people were great. They had a guy playing a steel drum on the grass. It was so organized. <laughs> Even the paparazzi had a section. There was, I went to uh, the Jacob Javits Center. The paparazzi had a section. Did they, were, you, were they getting your picture? Oh, yeah. Oh, I did the whole thing. I did the hat and the glasses and whatever. Not that I was, you know, listen, I'm eligible. It's 50 years old. I'm 55. Uh, no. And, and, the, <laughs> and the lady was like, oh, oh, it's you. And I said, yeah, it's me. And she's like, oh, okay. And she like, gave me the shot or whatever. But, I mean, there, were, uh, there was a guy on the piano with, a, you know, Keith Haring logos all over the piano, <laughs> playing the piano there. And it was, I mean, the, it was like clockwork. You walk in, you show the thing that you're eligible, the thing you got in the mail. You go up, they check your temperature without even you, you without I mean, it's you amazing. Even knowing it. It's the, amazing. In the few months when Christina was trying to get her parents um, an appointment for the vaccine, it was like NASA. In my house, everybody was on a laptop. Everybody was looking for a canceled appointment. Everybody was scrubbing all these different sites and stuff. 
totally different now, totally yeah. better. Yeah, it is better. And I, I'm glad many people are getting it. Um, and I do have to appeal to, I want to appeal to the Trump supporting males out there. Go get a shot if you want to be a good patriot. And I want to appeal to, especially to black people, people of color, go get the shot. This is about science. And there were many people of color who worked on this, right? And so this isn't something that is going to harm you in any way. Um, and it's not something that the government is out to get you. It's get the shot. And you got to be your own shot. advocate. You got to be your own advocate. Uh, because people are poaching. Yeah. Uh, just because vaccines are brought into your area, even the pharmacies, doesn't mean that they'll keep them waiting for you. Yeah. You got to be active. You got to be, you know, your own advocate in this. Find out where it is and go get it. It's getting easier all the time. I got to run because I have the breaking news, you know, with the congressman. But what did you do? You know, what shot did you get? Pfizer. Ah, same here. Pfizer. I so. got it because of the people saying that the long haul people who took it felt better afterwards. I figured, why not? So I, what I realized is that um, at, this is what happened when I was there. At Javits, during the day, they give like either Pfizer or Moderna. And then at night, they'll give you the J&J if you go overnight. So I think they do like different. That's what they told I me wanted I the J&J, but I, I was told yeah. that people who have had COVID and have antibodies, the research is better with the mRNA compounds. Yeah. Those are the two shots. Well, you look better. You sound better. I remember this. I was worried about you. Uh, <laughs> you were a little fuzzy. A, a little year ago, I was in a, a different while. place. I know. I was calling you. I'm like, are you OK? What's going on with you? You know, I love you. Give me a call. And I was like, who's What's this? <laughs> I got to run. I'll see you. Later. All right. I love you. D-Lo. I love you, too, brother. This is- Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.